Let's chat about how to get what you need for your home when you don't have a lot of cash or credit. You can do that at Aaron's. Rent to own appliances, furniture, and tech from top brands like HP, Samsung, and Ashley. But say you don't need it anymore, no problem. At Aaron's, you can return your product at any time or even upgrade it for something new. Life's always changing. With Aaron's, your stuff can change right along with it. Keep it, return it, upgrade it. Aaron's fits your life instead of the other way around. Approval isn't guaranteed and some restrictions apply. See your local store for details. We are welcoming a new show to iHeart and the DraftKings YouTube channel. It is called Point Game with John Wall and CJ Toledano. It's an insider's look at the NBA and the culture surrounding the league. Every week, the five-time All-Star and the number one pick in the 2010 NBA Draft, John Wall will give his unique perspective on the hottest topics in the league and tell the best behind-the-scenes stories from his time in the NBA. So check out Point Game with John Wall and CJ Toledano on the iHeartRadio app, the DraftKings YouTube channel, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Introducing the Lisa Chill Collection, your answer to hot nights. These mattresses beat the heat with ultra-cool covers, whisking away heat for the perfect sleep temperature. Save up to $460 on chill mattresses and get two free pillows when you shop now. iHeart listeners can save an extra $50 off by visiting lisa.com forward slash iHeart. That's L-E-E-S-A dot com slash iHeart. Exclusions apply. See lisa.com for more details. The Volume. The NBA season is in full swing, and when I can't get enough of the action on the court, I spice things up by betting on DraftKings Sportsbook, an official partner of the NBA. Right now, new customers can bet 5 bucks and get 200 instantly in bonus bets. I was looking at the lines for making the playoffs today, and you can get the Lakers at plus 115 to make the playoffs, and the Warriors, check this out, at plus 205 to make the playoffs. Download the DraftKings Sportsbook app with code HOOPS. That's H-O-O-P-S. New customers can bet 5 bucks on the NBA and get 200 instantly in bonus bets. Only on DraftKings Sportsbook with code HOOPS. That's H-O-O-P-S. The crown is yours. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or visit www.1800gambler.net. In New York, call 8778 Hope and Why, or text Hope and Why to 467 369. In Connecticut, help is available for problem gambling. Call 888 789 7777 or visit ccpg.org. Please play responsibly on behalf of Boot Hill Casino and Resort in Kansas. 21 plus age varies by jurisdiction, void in Ontario. Bonus bets expire 168 hours after issuance. See dkng.com slash basketball for eligibility and deposit restrictions, terms, and responsible gambling resources. All right, welcome to Hoops Tonight here at The Volume. Happy Monday, everybody. Hope all of you guys had an incredible weekend. It's good to be back. Love skiing. Park City was like blizzard conditions the entire time we were there, so it was kind of challenging skiing. Tons of powder, tough visibility, stuff like that, but it was great to spend some time with family. I'm actually heading out again on Saturday 
this time with my friends to go up to Breckenridge. Very, very excited about that. But we're in town for the normal week, uh, uh, this entire week. It's going to be pretty straightforward today for a Monday show. I'm going to hit a couple of instant reactions. We're going to react to Bucks Kings from last night, an absolutely wild game capped off by a Damian Lillard game winner. Then we're going to talk about the Clippers and the Timberwolves, an interesting matchup that I thought taught us a lot about the Clippers potentially as it pertains to playoff matchups. And then last but not least, at the end of the show, we're going to be doing our latest edition of Power Rankings. You guys know the drill before we get started. Subscribe to our brand new YouTube channel. It'd mean a lot to me if you guys would take a second to scroll down and hit that subscribe button. Don't forget about our podcast feeds wherever you get your podcasts under hoops tonight. Follow me on Twitter at underscore JasonLT so you guys don't miss any show announcements or the film threads that I do this morning. Did two long film threads on the two games that we're covering today. And then last... Finally, don't forget to keep dropping mailbag questions in the YouTube comments. I plan on hitting some YouTube, uh, some mailbag questions in tomorrow's show. So drop them in the comments of this video so that we can get to them in tomorrow's show. Remember, that's the way that you guys can kind of direct the show in your guys' direction. Specific teams you guys want to talk about, specific non-basketball things you guys want to talk about. That's what the mailbags are for. That's where I want to be more interactive. All right, let's talk some basketball. So Bucks kings very weird basketball game. Keegan Murray leaves early with an injury. Uh, it doesn't come out for the second half. The Bucks run a ton of zone. They, on the season, typically run fewer than four possessions of zone, uh, zone defense per game. Now, they've dabbled in it here or there as, as they've been trying to figure out a way to play defense with this group. But it's never been anything that they've leaned super heavily into. And last night, after they gave up 37 points, in the uh, in the first quarter, they ran zone 33 times in the second, third, fourth quarter, and in overtime. It basically was their base defense at that point forward. They were in man and transition situations or after missed shots, but basically any dead ball or made basket, the Bucks were dropping into the zone. And it was a really bizarre game. The the Kings basically had the game won in overtime. Malik Monk randomly missed two free throws. He's an 85% free throw shooter. He missed two free throws down the stretch. And then De'Aaron Fox, who's a 73% free throw shooter, he misses one as well. Next thing you know, uh, uh, Brooke Lopez hits a corner three in transition and Damian Lillard bombs a three at the buzzer and all of a sudden the Bucks won. But there's that's typical regular season weirdness. That's the kind of thing that can happen, right? But there was a lot of interesting basketball in there from both teams that I want to dive into. So let's start with Milwaukee's zone. Now, it's I'm not sure if they're calling it, uh, and I haven't done the appropriate digging in terms of like searching through to see if any Bucks beat reporter has, has asked one of the coaching staff about it or not, but uh, judging from the tape, it looks like either a, a, a 2-1-2 or a 2-3 where the big man, the, low, the, the, the center who's typically underneath the basket, is playing much higher up at like the foul line to you know, show on any sort of uh, guy coming off of a of a screen at the top of the key to try to contest or to prevent the high post touch, which is usually a dangerous part in a 2-3 zone, right? But I'm not uh, really concerned with necessarily what it's called. Just schematically, that's what it looks like. Two guys at the top, two guys in the corners, and then that center, instead of being directly under the rim, was playing up around the foul line. But it was an incredibly sloppy zone. The Bucks players didn't really seem to know who to guard or how to rotate when any sort of player movement happened. One of the specific themes that kept happening, and I clipped like a half dozen examples of this, 
but when the Kings would just cut a guy through to the opposite side of the floor. So let's say uh, 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 Kevin Herter is on the right wing and the ball is on the left wing and he'll just cut through. And like the guy for the Bucks in that, you know, uh, right side corner is kind of pointing like someone else has got to go get him. And no one would get him, and because Brooke would be up at the foul line, they would just drop the ball underneath the basket for Herder for a layup. Or one of the guys would run with that guy, but no one would kind of rotate around, and then they'd give up a wide-open shot on the, on the wing or in the corner. It was just it was kind of sloppy in, in that sense. Basically, anytime the Kings cut a man through the zone, they scored. Anytime the Kings went with like an odd front, or there was a play where like you know uh, Malik Monk had the ball on the right wing and. Uh, De'Aaron Fox is on the left wing, and Malik Beasley's just face guarding him. And Dame's on the ball, and Kevin Herter just kind of settles right at the top of the key in between those two guys. And because Malik's off ball face guarding De'Aaron Fox, and because Dame is on the ball, there's just nobody there. And Brooke, even at the foul line, isn't in a position to contest her. Just toss it over to, uh, to Kevin Herter, and he makes a three. That said, one of the reasons why the Bucks were able to stick in the zone as long as they did is uh, uh, the, the Kings did not do a really good job of attacking it by maintaining those specific things. Player movement, odd man fronts to try to take advantage of the two-man front in the zone, right? For the most part, they just kind of set up in their four-out kind of a uh, 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 dynamic where they have a shooter in each corner and shooter on the wing, ball handler on the opposite wing, and they just have Sabonis come screen the top man. And so they took a lot of, of like kind of contested floaters and mid-range jump shots, which just on a points-per-possession basis aren't super valuable. So even though the, the Bucks ran 35 possessions a zone and only gave up 34 points, in the numbers it seems fine, but when it came down to the end of the game situations when they needed to get stops, it was just really easy for, De- for De'Aaron Fox to just come off of that top ball screen. Brooke is sitting back shoot that little floater over the top or shoot that little short mid-range jump shot. So, And, and, and we're going to get to that when we talk big picture bucks because this is not a team I think that can get away with running massive amounts of zone. I, I just I just don't think it'll work against really, really good playoff offenses. But in this small sample size, it actually ended up being one of their more effective defenses up until the end of the game when they really needed to get stops. And so What's interesting, I had a, uh, I had a, 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 what I was doing my film thread this morning, there was a Bucks fan, I, th- I believe a Bucks fan, who commented on Twitter and they were asking like, hey, wh- why do you think the Bucks went to this zone? Do you think it was just because they were sick, of tired, uh, uh, sick and tired of chasing the Kings guards around and they just wanted to not have to do that anymore? And the reality is, is like, I think that was the idea. Like I think the idea was, how do we make it so that Buck, uh, so that Brooke is always at the rim for every single one of these Deer and Fox and Malik Monk, you know, ball screens, basically, uh, or at least not necessarily at the rim, but waiting in, in help, so that at least if Dame or Malik gets beat soundly over the top of the screen, at least he's running into another another body just by the configuration of the defense. All of the damage they were having at the rim, where they were getting wide open layups and back cuts and things like that, they were cuts. It was it was guys cutting behind Brooke. But it was not a typical layup line of Deer and Fox and Malik Monk getting downhill because of the configuration of the zone. That's why they did it. That said, it still has a very similar job in the sense that if you don't have Malik Monk or excuse me, Malik Beasley or dear uh, Damian Lillard doing a good job chasing over the top, then those guys are getting really comfortable floaters and push shots, which are kind of typical drop coverage dynamics anyway, right? So like when push came to shove at the end of the game, it was Dame in particular that De'Aaron Fox kept going at and just getting wide open, easy shots in rhythm 
against Milwaukee uh, and, 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 and uh, Brooke Lopez kind of sitting in that drop in the zone, right? And this is where I want to kind of draw a dynamic between the difference between like effort-related issues and personnel-related issues. Because it was interesting watching this game because there were dozens of opportunities for, uh, for um, uh, Damian Lillard and Malik Beasley to chase over the top of a screen in their zone to try to funnel guys into Brooke Lopez. Now, one of the concepts we talk about a lot on the show is the idea of back pressure, right? So in that bracketing coverage, right, I'm chasing over the top of the screen, Brooke is waiting. So we're the two ends of the coverage. But if there's only one end of the coverage, which is Brooke offering some sort of contest, then the on-ball player, the, the, the ball handler, is not concerned about what's going on behind him. And so basically, when he gets over the top of the screen, he can kind of get into his bag and he's comfortable. And now it's like I've talked about so many times on the show. Now it's like a shooting drill. Now it's like when De'Aaron Fox is in the gym by himself over the summer and he's coming off of you know one of his trainers as a fake ball screen and kind of settling into that easy shot that he likes to take there in the short range. When the backside bracket is included, now when he comes off of that screen, he's not comfortable because he's worried about what's happening behind him and worried about what's happening in front of him. It becomes a much more complicated dynamic. And, you know, Malik Beasley has caught a lot of flack this year, and he has some limitations. But interestingly enough, like, Malik Beasley is actually a pretty good athlete. Like, he's got quickness. He's got, you know, a, a little bit of vertical pop. He's got some of that stuff. He's a little undersized, right? Like, that, that, he's not a very big guard. But he's capable of doing a better job than what we've seen for the most part this season. And to Malik Beasley's credit, as he said in his postgame pressers, like, he's like, no, no, we're going to figure this out. We don't need a trade. Like, we just need to figure out how to play defense as a group. And he's putting his money where his mouth is from the standpoint of effort. He really is. He's trying. Like most of most of Malik's issues are focus related. There were like three or four clips that I put in that thread today where it's like he's just not paying attention or he's not seeing man and ball or like there's the occasional possession he'll take off. But you can see him trying. And so I wanted to highlight two plays to kind of demonstrate to you guys the difference in effort versus just conceding that at the point of attack. And it's two deer and Fox shots. And both of these plays are in that thread on my Twitter feed at underscore Jason LT. So guys, I want you guys to see that. So, Malik Beasley on the ball. Sabonis is coming to set the screen. Darren Fox has the ball. They're out further away from the basket, probably like 35 feet from the rim. And Malik Beasley is trying to deny him the use of the ball screen. So, he's sitting up high on the ball screen trying to force De'Aaron Fox to go back towards his right hand. Right. So, De'Aaron Fox does what every good guard does when they want to set their man up for a screen. So, he takes a hard dribble towards his right and then does a behind-the-back dribble to then go use a screen. Basically, getting Malik to... Uh, abandon his deny position and try to get back in front of De'Aaron Fox so that he can beat him back over the top of the screen, which he does, right? But Malik, instead of giving up on the play, uses kind of like a nifty spin move to get underneath the screen and gets back in front of De'Aaron Fox. De'Aaron Fox, though, when he comes off the screen, he's screaming downhill with that left-hand drive. So he gets all the way down past the, the foul line. And when Beasley gets back into the play, De'Aaron Fox is almost surprised. And on the play, De'Aaron Fox takes his power dribble, and Malik Beasley takes the contact in his chest and goes flying. And, like, literally he's out of the play. And De'Aaron Fox ends up standing completely unguarded, 10 feet from the basket, and he he's like, oh, shit, I'm wide open. And he takes this, like, weird left-handed – yeah, he's a lefty. But he takes this weird little short jump shot that looks just kind of like a break rhythm jump shot, and he misses it. And what's interesting to me about that play is even though it was a wide open shot, it was a disrupted rhythm shot because Malik fought 
to get back into the play, put his body on the line, and throw off the entire rhythm of De'Aaron Fox's attack in the pick and roll. So that even when he got a good look, it wasn't a good look that he typically practices. And so it was just weird. Like it was, it was, He was in an NBA game, in the, uh, I think it was in the fourth quarter too, and he's just rising up completely unguarded at, at 10 feet. It was just weird. Like it, it, and off of the different footwork and kind of handle than he expected, right? Now I want to fast forward, and we'll come back to that play in a second. Now I want to fast forward to the, the final minutes. Uh, Bucks are up by five, I think, with like a minute and a half left or something. Same exact setup in the zone. Damian Lillard is this uh, is the guy that's on ball this time. And Darren Fox, which by the way was uh, because of the way it was organized in their zone, whether or not Fox or Beasley was on ball was typically just based on which side of the floor they, uh, the Kings decided to attack from, right? So on this play, Darren Fox comes off the ball screen and Dame just concedes it. So, like, kind of, sort of takes a lunge step to kind of get over the top of the screen. But once De'Aaron actually beats him over the top, he literally stops playing. And so, because he stops playing, Darren Fox, completely unconcerned with what's happening behind him, kind of goes into this, like, nifty rhythm pull-up 15-footer. Brooke Lopez actually gets a better contest on it, a much better contest than on the wide-open one that Malik Beasley made him take earlier, Right? The difference is that little pull-up 15-foot jump shot that De'Aaron Fox took is the kind of shot he practices all summer. The same footwork, the same handle, and everything that he practices all summer because Dame did nothing to break his rhythm as he's fighting over the top of the screen. So I thought it was a really interesting kind of example of two different plays, like one play where uh, Beasley kind of gave up an open shot and one play where Dame gave up a contested shot, but because of back pressure... One shot was missed, and the other shot was not. One play, Malik Beasley disrupts rhythm and forces a miss. The other play, Damian Lillard does nothing to disrupt rhythm, and De'Aaron Fox makes a tough shot. Again, like we always focus on shot result, and we look at all these different things, but more often than not, it's can a defense disrupt your rhythm? Because if they can disrupt your rhythm, that will lead to differences in shot results. Something that we talk about all the time on the show, and we're going to talk about again when we get to Clippers-Wolves later, because they didn't shoot. the Clippers didn't shoot particularly well. And, and a lot of Clippers fans, even the Clippers broadcast was like, oh, I, you know, the Clippers are just not shooting well. And it's like, are you watching what Minnesota is doing to disrupt rhythm? Actually, there was a, there was a specific uh, clip that I pulled in the um, Clippers-Wolves thread that's another great example of back pressure, this time actually by Terrence Mann on Anthony Edwards. And one of the interesting things that Terrence Mann did, right as he was running over the top of the screen, he swipes around the back and clips some of the basketball. Doesn't actually get a steal, but make sure Ant knows he's there. Then as Ant is going downhill, Terrence Mann reaches out and just puts his left hand on Ant's hip. He's touching it. And I thought it was a really interesting example of like disrupting rhythm because all that's doing is it's freaking Ant out, you know, in terms of his decision-making process in a really short uh, period of time because he's like, oh shit, like Terrence Mann's right behind me, Right. And on that play, Ant drives like headlong into Daniel Tyson, gets stripped, and turns the ball over. And that, that's kind of a great example of what I'm talking about. Like the hand on the hip, that's not going to actually cause Ant to miss a shot if he decides to rise up and shoot. But what it does is it gets in the ball handler's head. It starts to disrupt their typical decision-making process. It's such an important part of of any sort of 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 a coverage that involves a big man waiting in ball screens to help at the rim. 
Now, one of the big reasons why I, I brought this particular example up and went into such detail is this is where I want to talk about the Bucks' defense in the big picture because they beat the Celtics the other night, right? And what was really interesting to me about that game was early on in the game, Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown kind of co-opted the offense. And they were really, really hunting their own shot. And they were constantly settling for these tough mid-range jump shots over Chris Middleton and Giannis. Who, by the way, in a mat just purely from a matchup standpoint, Tatum on Middleton or Brown on Giannis or vice versa is not actually as good of a matchup as Derek White or Drew Holiday against um, Damian Lillard and Malik Beasley. That's where those matchups are. And so what I thought was really interesting about that is like we've talked a lot about we've talked a lot about Boston's offensive approach, right? And whether or not they're they're like going to be able to out execute a lot of these teams. And that was an interesting example to me in the Boston Milwaukee matchup of like, yeah, we talk a lot about Malik Beasley and, and Damian Lillard as perimeter defenders, but what if Boston's not deliberate enough to attack those guys? And what if they do have Jalen Brown and Jason Tatum just constantly try to attack better defenders? And, and that leads to problems for them. But we're going to get to that a little bit more in a little bit when we talk about the Boston Celtics matchup, which I want to get to later on in the show. But specifically, though, to win four playoff series, you're probably going to have to go through a skill guard of some kind. Like, let's say you beat Boston and you end up in a series against Denver. Who's the guy that you're putting on Jamal Murray, right? So, like, this is a consistent issue that we're going to see. And what I find encouraging about it is Malik is trying. And Dame is capable of playing a hell of a lot better than he did. I thought, like, Dame saved the day. He made the bomb. He made the prayer. He won the game. But they should have lost. And if Sacramento makes their free throws, they lose. And Dame had a huge role to play in that down the stretch because he wasn't even trying. There were, there were, I talked about the one at the end of regulation. There's another one in overtime that's like borderline embarrassing. And I clipped that play and I put it on my Twitter feed again. A two point game in overtime. And Dame is just like, nah. Uh, I'm not even going to get back in the play. Like, I'm just, I'm, like, he just, th th there's like almost no effort taking place there. And like, this is where it gets interesting because like, I, I don't know that the Bucks have the assets necessarily to go bring back a really high level two-way player to replace Malik Beasley. And Malik is shooting the shit out of the basketball this year and attacking closeouts well. Like Malik, Malik really is. And so at a certain point, Malik Beasley just kind of getting better at this might be the best hope for Milwaukee in the long run. That said, it's going to require two things. They're going to have to get more effort from Dame. And maybe this is just handling the, you know, eating regular season innings, so to speak. But when they get to the postseason, at least, Dame is going to have to at least try to do some of this stuff. Doesn't have to do a ton of it, but he's going to have to do a better job than he's been doing. And then secondly... On offense, they're going to have to reach that Denver-esque level of inevitability. Because I don't think this team is fast enough on the perimeter defensively to be a dominant defense, right? This is where I want to get to the uh, uh, the Bucks' offense down the stretch. So, uh, once again, they closed with a lot of Dame Giannis pick and roll. And Sacramento was blitzing them for the most part. And uh, they're, you know, at first... 
Dame was having some trouble with the blitz because they were doing a really aggressive job uh, blitzing him and preventing the easy pass. But then Dame countered that by using a nice mix of like swing passes along the perimeter to make the roll man pass. Or uh, uh, he, uh, he, at one point he used like a really nifty reverse pivot to kind of get out of that mess. But like w- w- basically with the blitz, they were generating these short roll opportunities for Giannis. And then from there, there were two things that stood out to me. One, a little bit of indecisiveness from Giannis. Like there was a play where Pat Connaughton's wide open in the corner and he like didn't want to throw it to him. And then like he hesitated and then he did finally throw it to him, but he threw it way too high and so the advantage was gone. And then like a couple possessions later, he does actually throw the ball to Pat Connaughton in the corner, but he misses the three and it's like he'd be in rhythm if you just keep feeding him there. Like, trust me, if, if your offense keeps generating wide open corner threes for Pat Connaughton, like, you're going to score a lot of points. Like, that, that's a shot he, he's going to hit at over, well over a point per possession, right? There a little bit was, like, the layout of the floor. Like, I've, I've talked about this before. I really, really like the, the cleared side pick and rolls for Dame and Giannis. So, like, when you clear the side, let's say Dame has the ball on the left wing and Giannis comes and sets the screen and he kind of short rolls off to the left you know, elbow extended or left wing kind of short range, like 20 feet from the basket on the left side of the floor. Then with the Kings, all their help defenders are on the other side of the floor or in the paint. And even if they're in the paint, Giannis would have a head of steam going downhill towards them. And so Dame Dame can bring the two defenders over and just kind of hook a looping pass over the top and Giannis can just kind of catch and rip to his left. But they were running it in the middle of the floor. And one of the things that sucks about uh, operating in the middle of the floor is it's just really hard to see both sides of the floor. There was a play that I clipped and and added to to that thread where Giannis short rolls. It's a Dame Giannis pick and roll in the middle of the floor. Blitz comes, easy pocket pass. But on the play, when when Giannis catches it, Malik Monk is ignoring Malik Beasley in the left corner and comes over to kind of like help and like build a wall on Giannis. And Malik Beasley's standing wide open in the corner. A, a guy who's shooting, what, damn near 50% from three this year, right? And well over 50% in the last few games, right? And Giannis just doesn't see it because it's behind him. And he ends up dribbling into the lane and taking one of those, you know, kind of hook shots at like a push floater in the lane from like 12 feet out that he ends up missing. And that's an example of what I'm talking about. Like, it's, yeah, it's it's true that if you run it on the uh, the cleared side, the rotations are a little easier for the defense on the on the weak side. But that doesn't matter if Giannis can't actually make the 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 pass to that guy, right? And so what I like about clearing the side is it simplifies the decision-making process and any sort of negative impact of making the defensive rotations easier because the shooters are more closely packed on the weak side is undone by the fact that it's just easier to see. It's just easier to see for Giannis in those situations. And I clipped a bunch of examples of the Dame Giannis pick and roll. And like, there were a bunch of examples of them just not really being as, as, as kind of locked in, in terms of of making the reads as they could be. I talked about the Giannis missing Connaughton in the corner. I talked about Giannis missing Malik Beasley in the corner. There was a play where Dame just decided to snake the pick and roll, which means he tried to get back over to the other side after he went over the screen as Giannis was rolling and they like ran into each other. There was a play where they did run a cleared side pick and roll for Giannis and Giannis was open on the left wing and instead of Dame making the pass, he dribbled into traffic and forced a floater over four bodies and missed it right? Point being like they can get so much better at this stuff. And so kind of to, to bring it all back uh, into the big picture here, what's encouraging to me about the Bucks is three things. One, Malik Beasley's trying and he can get way better at defense. So can Dame. Dame is not trying yet, 
but he's capable. And as a unit, I don't think they're going to be able to run zone, but I do think that they're capable of at least getting to a higher level of defense than where they are currently. Two, their offense can still get so much better. Sacramento flat out out-executed Milwaukee down the stretch in this game. In overtime, 0-0 basically, the, the Kings outplayed them until they choked at the foul line. Like, And a big part of that was the Dame Giannis pick and roll not quite generating the consistent offense that it needed to generate. They can get better there. That's encouraging. And then three, what we learned in that Celtics game, which is like Boston definitely has the personnel to expose all of Milwaukee's flaws and to beat them in a seven-gamer. I think they do. I think they have the personnel to do that at every team in the league. I think they're the most talented roster, right? Problem is, will they be diligent enough to do so? And I thought that the Milwaukee-Boston game where Milwaukee jumped them early, heavy dose of pull-up tough jump shots from Tatum and Brown early, not a lot of stuff through Derek White and Drew Holiday early to just try to get the defense in rotation against Milwaukee's guards. And it was a big part of how Milwaukee ran away with that game. Obviously, schedule played a role. Celtics fans, I'm fully aware. It was a really tough schedule back and back to back. I'm just talking schematically in that game. Boston didn't have a super smart approach. And I think that's a great indicator of like, if, if I was trying to make the case for how Boston and Milwaukee could go Milwaukee's way, it, it would be Milwaukee reaches their individual defensive ceiling. The Dame Giannis pick and roll is unguardable and consistently generates high quality shots. And Boston just has bad process. That would be how it would break down. And so, again, an encouraging week of basketball for the Milwaukee Bucks from the standpoint of like they went undefeated. You beat the Celtics. You manhandled the Celtics. Encouraging stuff. Obviously, getting a Damian Lillard game-winning three is is a big deal for just you know kind of legitimizing the trade and showing why you trade for Damian Lillard. But there's just so much room for improvement. I choose to go positive there. There's so much more room for improvement for this particular team. All right, the Kings, they had this game won. Again, in regulation, they came back by getting stops in the half court against the Dame Giannis pick and roll and by De'Aaron Fox getting buckets on the other end. I talked about the ones against Dame and his little drop coverage. Game tying shot was kind of a transition possession. And it was really interesting. Good defense from Milwaukee because you're down two or you're up two, so you just don't want to lose. Like It's overtime or, or, or win the game, basically, right? And Giannis ended up picking up De'Aaron Fox in transition, and he had to press up on De'Aaron Fox because De'Aaron Fox is shooting the shit out of pull-up threes this year, so you got to take that away. And then all the help defenders were glued up off the ball, as they should be, because you don't want to give up a three that could beat you, right? But I just wanted to shout out De'Aaron Fox because he ended up getting an angle on Giannis and finishing above him at the rim, and there's just not many players in the league who can do that against an athlete like Giannis. And then in overtime, they out-executed Milwaukee and and just choked the game away at the foul line, to put it simply. That's just what happened. I mean, De'Aaron Fox, uh, 73% shooter, goes 1 for 2. Malik Monk, 85% shooter, goes 0 for 2. So, you know, obviously that that that's that's tough. That's a tough way to lose a game. And they're 6-6 six and six in their last 12, 15th in offense, 16th in defense over that span. De'Aaron Fox has cooled off quite a bit. De'Aaron Fox's first 21 games... 30 points, four rebounds, and six assists on 48% from the field and 40% from three in this six and six stretch over the last 12, 25 points per game, four rebounds, and five assists per game on 44% from the field and 37% from three. So De'Aaron Fox has cooled off, but uh, Devonis Sabonis is playing at the highest level of his, of his career, in my opinion. 23 points, 14 rebounds, and nine assists over the last 12 games. from the field and 56% from three. And again, kind of looking big picture with the Kings, 
I trust De'Aaron Fox and Malik Monk to be able to generate quality shots in the playoffs. I do. They just need to bracket their defense properly. Again, when you don't have really high-level rim protection, you need to be excellent at the point of attack and excellent in weak side help and rebounding. And that's where that athletic forward archetype comes in. And this is why I was happy with them at least talking about Siakam because it reveals to me that the Kings front office at least has their mind in the front place. Like To me, that archetype of player, that big athletic forward that can clean up as a low man in rim protection and defensive rebounding is like a prerequisite for this team to have any sort of real championship potential. And so, in my opinion, like if you if you get De'Aaron Fox at the level he was playing to start the year and you get a, a Pascal Siakam on that front line, like they're not in the Denver tier, but they, they enter into that tier of teams that could win the conference if things go right. And so I'll be really curious to see what they end up doing here uh, at the deadline. We are welcoming a new show to iHeart and the DraftKings YouTube channel. It is called Point Game with John Wall and CJ Toledano. It is an insider's look at the NBA and the culture surrounding the league. Every week, the five-time All-Star and number one pick in the 2010 NBA Draft, John Wall will give his unique perspective on the hottest topics in the league and tell the best behind-the-scenes stories from his time in the NBA. CJ will bring his A-list comedian buddies to keep it light and fire off some hoops takes. Plus, John will be inviting current and former NBA players, friends, and teammates to join the show as well to give their unfiltered accounts of what really goes on in the league from a player's perspective. So check out Point Game with John Wall and CJ Toledano on the iHeartRadio app, the DraftKings YouTube channel, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Ever needed something for your home but don't have the cash or credit to pay for it? Let's chat about how to get what you need when you need it. You can do that at errands. Yep, you can rent to own appliances like washers, dryers, or refrigerators, furniture for your living room or bedroom, even tech like computers and gaming systems. Plus, errands has great brands like HP, Samsung, and Ashley. And you can pay a little at a time until it's yours forever. But here's the cool part. Say you're renting a 65-inch smart TV and decide you don't want it anymore. At Aaron's, you can return it at any time. Or maybe you want to downsize to a 55-inch or upgrade to an 86-inch. You can do that too. Return it, then take home something new. Life's always changing. With Aaron's, your stuff can change right along with it. Keep it, return it, upgrade it. Aaron's fits your life instead of the other way around. So check out your nearest Aaron's store or visit Aaron's.com for more details. Approval isn't guaranteed and some restrictions apply. See your local store for details. Tired of restless nights? Meet Lisa, the sleep expert. (sighs) Here at Lisa, we know that good sleep is essential for mental, physical, and emotional health. That's why their mattresses are made for exceptional comfort and support, catering to every sleep need. Check out Lisa's Sapira Hybrid Mattress, named best hybrid mattress five years running. Sleep hot? The Chill Collection is built with cool-to-the-touch top fabric and layers of high-density comfort foams, all intended to remove excess body heat while maximizing comfort. With Lisa, getting a new mattress has never been easier. Delivery is free, and you have 100 nights to try out your mattress in the comfort of your home. Don't spend another night dreaming of better sleep. For a limited time, save up to $700 off select mattresses plus two free pillows. Go to lisa.com forward slash iHeart for an additional $50 off mattresses and select goods. That's l-e-e-s-a dot com forward slash iHeart. Exclusions apply. See lisa.com for more details. All right, Clippers Wolves. First of the two crazy Clippers tests that we talked about this week, they play the Thunder tomorrow, which we'll learn a lot about 
The Wolves completely controlled this game. There was a late comeback from the Clippers in the final minutes, but they never actually had the ball with the chance to tie the game. And it was a lot of the classic stuff you see in the NBA where like a team controls and gets up by 15 and then they kind of let their foot off the gas a little bit and the other team kind of gets going and then they make it semi-close late, but then the other team gets a couple of key stops and a couple of key plays and they win the game, right? The uh, Timberwolves defense held the Clippers to a 113 offensive rating. Jade McDaniels did an awesome job on Kawhi Leonard. Rudy Gobert had four blocks, including blocking Kawhi twice. Um, they, the, the Minnesota Timberwolves ran this like one random possession of zone, and uh, Rudy Gobert got a block on Kawhi on it. Anthony Edwards guarding Paul George, flying around in general. Just Anthony Edwards was like his ability to like dig down and help, and then like contest a three point shot with his athleticism is just insane. Kyle Anderson had a bunch of good defensive possessions. All these guys can switch onto any of the other guys that are on the floor. And, and I want I want to get to this in a minute when we talk Clippers because this is a specific dynamic that I think is troubling for the Clippers. Anthony Edwards completely dominated the third quarter. He started by like. Because uh, I talked earlier about Terrence Mann's back pressure and the job he was doing against Ant and pick and roll. Well, one of the things that Anthony Edwards did, which I thought was really smart, was he came out to start the third quarter and just started posting up Terrence Mann. And he's too big and strong for him, specifically low center of gravity and quick lateral movement. So he's able to make these like quick pivot moves to get around Terrence Mann and get at the rim and, and finish close to the basket. That actually forced the Clippers... To uh to make a uh, to to make a switch and to put Kawhi Leonard on Anthony Edwards, which kind of changed some of the configuration of their defense. He also hit the two biggest shots of the game, in my opinion, at the end of the third quarter. This ridiculous pull up bank shot over Kawhi Leonard, and then a transition three after a pretty ugly Russell Westbrook turnover. Uh, th- you know, one of the things that's really interesting to me about Ant long term, we talk a lot about his defense, but like this dude straight up against the best defenders in the league can get to his shot. Like he can get to a relatively high quality, high separation pull up two anytime he wants, or pull up three. And because yeah, like I talked about the the, the pull up jump shot over Kawhi, like Kawhi's guarding him one on one, and he just hits a hard move to the right and elevates. And when he elevates, he's got clear as day vision of the rim. Like Ka- Kawhi Leonard isn't smothering Anthony Edwards in isolation. Ice Ants get into his spots, and every everyone in the league is like. I hope he misses. That that's basically what's happening with Anthony Edwards. There's a possession, a couple possessions before this one, where he hit like this half spin move step back against Paul George, and like it's crazy footwork and it looks tough. But when he elevates, he gets great lift and great separation and a great look at the rim. He just smokes a bank shot, and it's really interesting to me because like as we go into the long term with Anthony Edwards, like when I think about Anthony Edwards in like his mid to late twenties. That's what gets really exciting because what if he does get to a point where he can knock that shot down 55% of the time? Like consistently. Especially the ones close to the rim. I really like close to the rim shot making because that's such a valuable tool when you get to the later rounds of the playoffs. That's what gets exciting to me with Anthony Edwards. Like right now, uh, we're going to talk big picture Wolves here in a minute, but they're done with this tough part in their schedule and they did really well uh, over this 18-game stretch. But their offense still struggle. They're 20th in offense in this 18-game 18, 18 stretch, which we'll talk about in a little bit. But like in the future, the you know kind of cure for that could just be Anthony Edwards becoming one of the better half-court shot makers in the league based on the fact that no one can keep him from getting to his spots, which I think is encouraging. Carl Towns just playing really good basketball. He was operating a lot as a hub from the elbow in this game, beating mismatches. He had this like kind of like chicken wing move on Russell Westbrook where he dunked it with his right hand. That was super nasty. And then running high-low with Rudy Gobert there. Again, you imagine a situation where Carl catches at the top of the key. 
and the floor is spread around him. He has an opportunity to like kind of make post entries to Rudy Gobert underneath the basket. There was a play where Rudy Gobert like pushed Daniel Tice, I think it was, up the lane and created a passing angle. Carl Towns threw the pass over the top. Uh, he drove a closeout late um, against Paul George in that third quarter run that he get where he got all the way to the rim against the Clippers in particular because they're somewhat undersized and they do a lot of switching. Having that kind of like matchup attacking forward that can do work closer to the basket with bully ball is super, super valuable. And Anthony Edwards and Carl Towns can do that. Which brings me to the Clippers. The reason why I wanted to see this Wolves game and the Thunder game tomorrow was this specific type of of matchup. And by the way, Wolves fans, I, I did want to talk a little bit about their um, – uh, this recent stretch, but I'm going to do that in the power rankings segment um, later on in the show. But on the Clippers front, one of the reasons why I said last week, because those of you guys who follow the show, I, list, I said last week, I plan on putting the Clippers in my championship contenders. It's just a question of where, and I wanted to wait until after the, uh, the Timberwolves game and the Thunder game. The reason why is they're two very different challenges. To me, the Thunder are a very similar version of a basketball team to them. They're a, a heavy ball handling team, tons of guys that can dribble, shoot, and pass, right? They're a bit undersized. A bunch of guys who can really work in ISO. So a lot of similarities between the Clippers and the Thunder. They're not exactly the same. Obviously, center position is very different. The perimeter players for the Clippers are bigger, but it's a similar kind of like uh, identity of a basketball team, right? And both teams are excellent point-of-attack defense teams. They have excellent on-ball defenders, and so it's basically like an on-ball contest. We're going to beat you on the ball on one end of the floor, and we're going to beat you on the ball at the other end of the floor defensively. That's kind of like the those two teams, right? The Wolves represent much more of a traditional playoff powerhouse, right? They're an older veteran team with a lot of experience. They're huge on the front line. They hang their hat on defense. They have, and not just on the perimeter, but at every phase of defense. They have a singular superstar that controls the show. That's a very traditional contender, right? And they can turn games into rock fights. That's what the Timberwolves do. That's what they've been doing since even before they were this good this season, right? And so... Again, when we talk about playoff teams and we talk about what they can do in the future, a lot of it has to do with you know, being able to win in different types of matchups because you have to beat four teams four times out of seven. And so if you match up really well with a team that might have done better than you in the regular season and you win, great, but you could run into a team that didn't do as good as you in the regular season but it's a bad matchup for you and you can lose, right? And so that's why we, when we're looking at the regular season, you have to, you, you know, you have to sift through everything, right? There are a lot of people out there that get really carried away with regular season results. I'm not that guy. Those of you who followed the show for a while know that. Like, there are guys out there where it's like, oh my gosh, this team won ten games in a row. Like, watch out for them. So and so is the best player in the league. This team's got to be a championship contender. And it's like, I just have seen so many times over the years the regular season results not mean anything. I mean, even just last year as we look, it's like Miami BSs through the regular season, even kind of BSs through the playing tournament, and then suddenly goes to the finals, right? Lakers start the season 2-10 and or literally floundering. People are talking shit about them nonstop all year just like this year, and then they end up making a, a run to the Western Conference Finals, right? Like Golden State, you know, kind of a little bit of a – uh, of a mediocre regular season, and then all of a sudden they beat the Sacramento Kings who kick everyone's ass during the regular season, right? And part of the issue is, is like motivation just plays a huge role in the NBA regular season. It just does. Like I, 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 I was talking about this uh, with my buddy Pete the other day, like the difference between different types of regular season teams. Like there are these young, energetic, talented teams that love playing together and they're young and they're full of all this, you know, 
energy, and they win a shit ton of regular season games, right? This year, we're looking at teams like the um, uh, the Oklahoma City Thunder, right? We're looking at teams like Memphis last year, right? Like that sort of thing does happen in the NBA where you get a young, super talented team, they win a shit ton of games, and then generally what happens is that team runs into like an older veteran team in the playoffs that didn't take the regular season as seriously, and then they get beat, right? There was the Warriors did it to the Grizzlies two years ago. The Lakers did it to the Grizzlies last year. I don't know who's going to do it to the Thunder this year. We'll see. But like I, I, I'm, I think the Thunder are a championship contender. But I wouldn't be surprised if they lose this year in the first or second round to an older veteran team. Right? Then you have like these veteran teams that are like that are 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 they hate regular season basketball and they're just trying to get through it. And as the league has gotten deeper with talent, they, they, it's even worse on that front. I mean. The, the thing with the Lakers is so funny because so many people point to the trade deadline last year. They're like, oh, they traded Russell Westbrook and, and they flipped the roster and then look at them go. They go to the Western Conference Finals. Who started the Western Conference Finals? Who started game four of the Western Conference Finals between the Nuggets and Lakers? It was Austin Reeves on the uh, roster before the Russell Westbrook trade. Dennis Schroeder on the roster before the Russell Westbrook trade. Rui Hachimura on the roster before the Russell Westbrook trade. LeBron James on the roster before the Russell Westbrook trade. Anthony Davis on the roster before the Russell Westbrook trade. Because the, re- the, the reality is, is what happens is a lot of these veteran teams, when they don't like playing together and when they're irritated and they're all pissy and emotional and, 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 and they're uh, you know, kind of passive-aggressively making their way through the season, they play shit basketball. While the young twenty-three-year-olds that all that all are are you know just super energetic and talented and all this shit, they win a lot of regular season games, right? Like that's the thing. The Lakers didn't just get dramatically better at the deadline last year. LeBron and Anthony Davis got healthy and they started trying every night. And when they started trying every night, they started winning. Guys in the Russell Westbrook trade did help in that span. I'm not trying to pretend like that stuff doesn't matter, but effort plays a huge role. Like, I expect the Lakers to make some sort of personnel change around the deadline this year. And who knows what will happen with the coach. They'll either fire him or they won't. But I, I, at this point, I'm, I, I don't think they will. But, like, what will happen is, is they'll be like, all right, shit, guys. Like, we're, you know, two games below 500 with 30 games left. Like, we we got to get it together. And, and then they go. And then they end up running into some young team in the playoffs. And they're just better. Because they're older, they're more experienced, they're bigger and they're stronger. They just they just know how to do this stuff. And so we all have to like work on sorting through the noise of the regular season. Because there are there are lots of teams like this around the league. Like like, de- uh, like the one thing that we always have to really really pay close attention to is when you do get a older veteran team that also loves to attack the regular season. And that also loves to play together. And that also doesn't seem to be miserable in January, right? And typically, if that team also has a top-tier superstar, like you should really be looking at that team as a championship contender. That, for the record, is why I have Denver as my, like, I've, I've, I, they were my number one championship contender before the season, and that hasn't changed. But recently, I told you guys, I personally would be surprised if Denver did not win as long as their core five guys are healthy. And that's the reason why I feel that way. Because they're and that's why I refer to Denver as a special team. They they have guys that have been around for a while. They've already been to the mountaintop. 
because that's the other thing that always happens with these veteran teams. Like, don't don't think for a second the fact that the uh, like look at what happened to Anthony Davis the minute he ho- hoisted the Larry O'Brien Trophy. You won it once and then just boo, down the, like it's a completely different guy from a motivation standpoint, right? So when you got a guy that already has won it all in Jokic in a team of guys that has already won it all, won it comfortably, and they know they don't really need to take the regular season seriously, and yet they still do. That's like big shining red lights. It's like this team's really fucking good, and, and we should and we should keep an eye on them. And that and that's why I have uh, Denver as my number one championship contender. But the point of that whole rant is to say like we have to sort through regular season noise. There are going to be teams every year that massively overachieve, that massively underachieve, and we have to kind of piece and uh, through all that stuff to kind of figure it out, right? And then there's a matchup element too. Like we talked about, that was Knicks-Cavs last year. Like a bad matchup for Cleveland wipes away a good regular season. Like all sorts of stuff like this can change playoff outcomes because we just don't pay attention to the details of what's happening in the regular season, right? So we have to sort through that. Now on the Clippers front, this is why I was looking at these two particular teams. Because the Clippers are a team. You have... Kawhi Leonard and Paul George, as healthy as they've been in a regular season forever, so they're like just more locked in and engaged. You have James Harden and a new destination, right? New team, also in a contract year. Like he's got to take this regular season seriously because it could dramatically affect how much he gets paid this summer, right? Like so much more is motivating the Clippers on a night-in and night-out basis in the NBA. And they went and won, what, 17 out of their last 20 games? before this Timberwolves won, right? So, like, they're kicking everybody's ass. So, how do we sort through that noise and try to figure out the Clippers as a playoff team? Now, with the Harden trade, right when it happened, remember, they lost six games in a row. And one of the things I said on the show is, like, don't overreact. Yes, I have concern about the, the Clippers as a playoff team, but if you remember, in that moment, I said, like, James Harden is way too good of a regular season offensive player and Paul George and Kawhi are way too good as regular season players. These guys are going to figure it out and win a lot of regular season games. Now they've won more than I expected, but I did expect them to be a good regular season team. I mean like during the 0 and 6 stretch, they couldn't score. Was anybody under the impression that the Clippers weren't going to be able to score the basketball this year? Like again, like that was obviously one of the things that was taking place during that 0 and 6 stretch. So they have been a better regular season team than I have expected, but I did expect them to kind of turn things around. But as we look through a playoff lens, it gets very different. What typically goes wrong for the Clippers in the playoffs over the years? One of two things has happened to them. Either one or both of their stars gets hurt, right? Or they run into a big, strong bully ball team and they miss pull-up jump, sh- jump shots while the other team generates really high-quality shots at the rim and catch-and-shoot threes out of double teams, right? That's basically what happened with Denver in 2020. Now, you might tell me, long time ago, and I agree with you, but same exact principle, and unfortunately, every year since then, the Stars have gotten hurt, so it's hard to say. So I'm not even going to talk about the injury thing because there's no point. If I want, It's not brave to sit up there and, and be like, oh, the Clippers are going to lose because they're going to get hurt. Like that, that, to me, is not basketball analysis. So that's not what I'm going to say. In the event where they're healthy, though, this is the type of matchup that can cause them problems. Kawhi Leonard and Paul George are two guys that don't get to the rim a ton, and they take a lot of pull-up jump shots, right? James Harden is a guy that generates a ton of quality shots but tends to not do so when he gets to the postseason. One of the main reasons why is is when the intensity picks up and the physicality picks up 
in the overall athletic kind of profile of the defense they're going against goes up a level, James Harden's impact declines. We saw that last year when he suddenly couldn't finish at the rim when he got to the postseason, right? Well, last night, James Harden, 4 for 14 from the field, 4 turnovers. Typically in his career, this is what happens. Against the really, really good physical defenses in these really big games, he can struggle to generate quality shots. That doesn't have anything to do with the regular season, for the most part, because you don't play the Timberwolves every night. And that's why they can go 17-3 and over a 20-game stretch, right? But they might have to beat Minnesota 4 out of 7. They might have to beat the Lakers 4 out of 7. They might have to beat the Nuggets 4 out of 7, right? Those three matchups are what concern me for the Clippers because they have big perimeter defenders that can offer really good contests on their pull-up jump shots, right? Aaron Gordon on Kawhi Leonard, right? Like the the Lakers, they're, they're slow on the perimeter, but they're big on the perimeter. So they have guys that can contest shots against these Clippers guys, right? Minnesota, Jaden McDaniels and Anthony Edwards and Kyle Anderson. It's like a... when teams have really long perimeter defenders that can contest Paul George and Kawhi and pull up jump shots and physical guards that can take James Harden out of his typical regular season efficacy and real rim protection on the backside while on the other end of the floor being able to punish a switching Clippers team with physical interior play like Denver does, like the Lakers do. That's where the Clippers start to have some problems. I don't think it's a coincidence that Kawhi Leonard and Paul George went, what were they, uh, 14 for 38 from the field last night. That's a really good defense. And Kawhi Leonard and Paul George typically take a lot of tough shots, right? Um, Even further, guys, six games this year for the Clippers against the Lakers, the Timberwolves, and the Nuggets. They're one in five in those matchups. So that's what's concerning to me. They play the Thunder tomorrow. The Thunder team is right up their alley. They will have significant size advantages in terms of their over-the-top shot making. They're not going to be shooting over long defenders. They're going to be shooting over short, stocky defenders, right? On the other end of the floor, it's going to be other guys trying to do what they do, mix them up off the dribble. They have the perimeter defensive talent to handle that, right? Oklahoma City is a small interior team. They're not going to be the team that bullies the Clippers inside the way that some of these other teams can. So, like, I actually expect them to fare really well against the Thunder. Wouldn't be surprised if they won at all. As a matter of fact, I'll pick the Clippers to win that game. But I think that's a great example of the matchups and the different types of teams and why it's different when we're evaluating a playoff opponent. It's like like on the Lakers front, really quickly to kind of tie this idea together, like I like them against skinny, smaller teams like the Thunder, but when they play against other big teams that they can't bully, but on the other end have better offensive players like Denver, they get their ass kicked all the time, you know? And so it's it's a pretty it's a pretty consistent issue down the line when we're evaluating these teams. Like, and what, that's something I'm going to factor in when we do add the Clippers to our contenders list. I'm just going to wait until after that Thunder game. All right, let's move on to our power rankings. Uh, one team dropping out this week, the Dallas Mavericks. They dropped two games last week, both without Luca to Memphis and New Orleans. And they're currently, I'm not watching the game, but I saw it was on when I was doing my notes. They're currently trailing the Pelicans again. But Luca's out. So obviously I expect him to return at some point. He's resting an ankle injury, I believe. And I expect that they'll be back on this list within a few weeks. Number 10, the Miami Heat, our new team this week. They're 8-4 and four in their last 12 games. And they have the third best defense in the league over that span. Tyler Harrow and Jaime Jaquez Jr. 
in that span are combining to average 38 points, 10 rebounds, and 7 assists in 2.5 steals per game, getting really high-quality perimeter play from those two guys, which has helped a lot with Jimmy Butler being out. Again, Jimmy Butler has played just one game and played hurt uh, over this 12-game span, so super encouraging on that front. I still think they need to trade for a really high-powered offensive player, and the play of Jaquez and Harrow has kind of made that a little bit bit more possible because I think those guys are desirable in a way that they may not have been over the offseason, right? But it remains to be seen if Miami will actually make that sort of aggressive move. Number nine, the New York Knicks. They finally took a loss in the OG Ananobi era in on the road in Dallas. They came out flat and got ran off the floor, uh, battled back, but didn't really have enough uh, gas at the end of the day. OG Ananobi so far in the, with the Knicks, 238 minutes plus 132. That's insane. He was even plus 14 in the Dallas loss. The Knicks are defending 97.4 defensive rating so far with OG Ananobi on the floor since the trade. Also, the Knicks have a really light end of their uh, January on the schedule, mostly at home, and they should be favored in every single game except for the Nuggets game. And I believe that game is in MSG, which I wouldn't be surprised if the Knicks came out and won that one. So don't be surprised if we come over, uh, come on the show in February and the Knicks are significantly higher on this list and in the standings. Number eight, the New Orleans Pelicans. They got smacked by Denver, but they beat Sacramento and they beat uh, Golden State and they beat Dallas. Um, great example of that same thing I was just talking about with the Clippers as it pertains to championship contention and matchups, right? Like they are, it's like the difference between like these long athletic, heavily polished teams with like really good ball handling and pull-up shooting versus the power and strength teams, right? Like that's kind of the, the, the difference there. And I think it's really interesting that the Pelicans, when they play other finesse teams, like when they play Sacramento, they beat their ass. When they play Golden State, they beat them. When they beat uh, play Dallas, although Luke is out, they beat them, right? But then they go and play one of those big, strong bully ball teams and they get their ass kicked. So like among those finesse teams, the Pelicans are one of the best in the league, but it, I don't think it's, it's, it's a good sign in general for these teams that they keep getting their ass kicked when they go to play the bigger teams around the league. Number seven, the Philadelphia 76ers. Uh, they beat Sacramento and lost to Atlanta, but Joel Embiid was out. Embiid is back today against Houston and is currently whooping their ass. And tomorrow they play Denver at home. Hopefully Joel Embiid will play in the tail end of the back-to-back. Good opportunity for him to uh, make a big step forward in his MVP case if he can outplay Nikola Jokic. Number six, the Los Angeles Clippers. They dropped a couple of uh, games against big teams, like we mentioned earlier, in Minnesota and the Lakers that have me a bit concerned about their playoff potential. They are now 1-5 this season against the three massive Western Conference teams that I always talk about, Denver, Minnesota, and the Lakers. Number five, the Milwaukee Bucks. They have an undefeated week. They beat Boston, Golden State, and Sacramento. But Boston was on the back on a back-to-back after a overtime win against Minnesota. Golden State sat Steph Curry. Can't talk today. And Sacramento basically wins that game if if uh, Malik Monk and Darren Fox can make some free throws at the end of the game. So I'm only moving them up one spot. That said, two big silver linings, three big silver linings. Their defense can still get so much better. Their offense can still get so much better. And that Celtics matchup was a strong indicator of the basketball IQ advantage that Milwaukee has. Number four, the Minnesota Timberwolves. They lost a tough overtime game in Boston. They led by nine with three and a half minutes left without Conley or Rudy Gobert. So as impressive a loss as you'll see. Uh, But they followed it up with a complete dismantling of the Clippers where they basically made all four of the Clippers stars play well below their standards. 
They're officially done with their hellacious stretch in their schedule. 18 straight games against really good teams. And what did I say during that stretch? I was like, you don't go undefeated in these runs. You don't rip off 18 straight against good teams. It's You want just a decent chunk over 500. That's literally what I said, and they went 11-7. So really, really encouraging stretch from the Timberwolves. They were third in defense over that stretch, so their defense is very legitimate, and they've demonstrated so. 20th in offense over that span, though. So everything really comes down to Anthony Edwards as a playoff shot creator because this team still struggles to score so much. Nobody can really stop him from getting to his spots. If he can make enough shots and make enough good decisions, the Timberwolves have a chance. Number three, the Denver Nuggets. They got absolutely blitzed in Utah, but everyone's been getting blitzed in Utah for a while. Utah's won 11 straight home games, for the record. But then they beat the Brakes off the Pelicans, and they beat the Pacers. This is a great example of a veteran team that attacks the regular season and has a top-tier superstar Great indicator, of my opinion, of a championship contender. Still by far my number one championship favorite at this point. Number two, the Oklahoma City Thunder. Yeah, undefeated week. They beat the Miami Heat, the Portland Trailblazers, and the Orlando Magic. Best offense in the league over the last 10 games. A 125.2 offensive rating. Shea Gilgis-Alexander has gone for 30-plus points in 28 of his 37 games this year and has five 40-point games. More than everyone in the league, not named Giannis, Luka, or Embiid. If he keeps playing like this... He's got a good shot at winning the MVP award this season. And then number one, the Boston Celtics. They dropped a game to Milwaukee that felt very much like a schedule loss on the heels of a big win against Minnesota. In that game against Minnesota, Jason Tatum hit a really tough pull-up three over Carl Towns late that made it a two-point game, helped send the game to overtime. Last week, we talked about Jason Tatum's pull-up three and what it means for Boston's offense and whether or not he could maintain it over time. Well, one more week. Three more games, six for 13 on pull-up threes. That's 46%. So it's a few weeks now where Jason Tatum has had that pull-up three going. Very, very encouraging. We'll see if he can maintain it. That shot is now worth, his overall pull-up jump shooting is worth 0.94 points per shot, ticking up in the right direction. All right, guys, that is all I have for today. As always, I sincerely appreciate you for uh, for supporting the show. We'll be back tomorrow to break down a jam-packed Monday slate. I will see you guys then. Let's chat about how to get what you need for your home when you don't have a lot of cash or credit. You can do that at Aaron's. Rent to own appliances, furniture, and tech from top brands like HP, Samsung, and Ashley. But say you don't need it anymore, no problem. At Aaron's, you can return your product at any time or even upgrade it for something new. Life's always changing. With Aaron's, your stuff can change right along with it. Keep it, return it, upgrade it. Aaron's fits your life instead of the other way around. Approval isn't guaranteed, and some restrictions apply. See your local store for details. Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80, live March 20th from the Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City, featuring a performance by John Batiste. 
The all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Allstate wants to remind fans that mayhem is everywhere. Like in the parking lot at your kid's peewee championship game. A trophy bigger than your five-year-old is blocking the rear windshield of the car in front of you. As they reverse into you, you're stuck on defense. And if you don't have the right auto insurance coverage, this crash could drain your athletic fund. So switch to Allstate, save money, and get protected from mayhem like this. Based on coverage selected, subject to terms, conditions, and availability. Savings vary.